Well, hello, Chris. Hey, John. And welcome to you and to anyone listening to another episode of Saul Searching, the podcast where we recap the latest episode of AMC's Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul. This week, we'll be talking about episode eight of season two of Better Call Saul, which was called Fifi for obvious reasons when you get to it. Although I don't know if if I know the greater significance of why the episode was called Fifi, but it's definitely a reference to the B-29 bomber that Jimmy uses in a stunt uh, about midway through the episode. It's just something nice to name the episode after. There probably just was not a better episode name. This episode was written by Thomas Schnauz. Schnauz. You reckon anyone ever calls him the Schnauzer? How could they not? But I always wonder about that. When you make a joke about someone's name, you have to realize you are not the first person (laughs) to make that joke. Right. They've dealt with it their whole life. Written by Thomas Schnauz and directed by Larissa Kondracki. And Thomas Schnauz is a veteran writer of Breaking Bad and this show, and we've seen his name a lot. And then Larissa Kondracki, she directed an episode of Better Call Saul from last season. She directed the episode Bingo. Um, What did you think of that opening scene, that, I don't know, four-minute scene with no edits that tracked the, I'm going to get this name right... The uh, Rigallo Hayado uh, truck into, I guess, from Mexico into America. Oh, wow. You, you got the pronunciation in there and everything. I think that's how you would say that. It looks like Rigallo Hayado. And, and that means Regal ice cream or Regal brand ice cream. Yeah, that, that makes more sense. I tried to Google it, at Google, like, translate it, and it said uh, frozen gift. And I thought, well, that's lovely. Anyway, uh, that was that was a real technical achievement. So definitely give the the director a lot of points for that. That one huge long shot uh, was amazing. And it was helped along by some great music. It had room to breathe as a piece of music, you know, as a composition, because it grew over the course of what must have been, I didn't time it, but three, three and a half minutes, four minutes, something like that, that opening scene. It was like the Touch of Evil opening scene. Yeah. To have that one big long shot where you get to see all kind of stuff pass through. And of course, we remember Los Pollos Hermanos, so we remember the idea of smuggling something in with some food, you know, so I do think that's ringing in our ears as we watch that scene, that we do believe we've seen something like this before on this show, but it's not It's not Los Pollos Hermanos. It's not something we've seen before. It's not a character we've seen before. Right. Based on the visual language of the storytelling, like, you totally get that he's done this many times because we see him stick the popsicle stick down into the ground, and we see that it's, you know, not the first time he's done this. I even thought he kind of seemed to be using the popsicle as a little bit of a timer, like he took the popsicle out of the box and started eating it and right around the time he finished it is when he pulled up to that mile marker number 10 that he stopped at you know i kind of thought that was the uh like the popsicles almost a device just for us to know oh this is only a half hour later or, or 10 minutes after he crossed the border or something that uh that he pulls over and gets his gun. You realize this was some kind of routine. We don't really know for sure what's going on, but something's got to be being smuggled inside something. Um, you know, the connection that we see play out through the episode of that character popping up at, I don't know the name of the place. I tried to uh, write it down. It looks like El Grigo Cuyador, the name of the place where we've seen the Salamanca family hold up. Right, whatever the restaurant is where they have their operation. I think you could point to that opening scene as a great example of what this show does really well. And you could also point to that opening scene as a great example of of the way this show will sort of keep you dangling, watching stuff, and going, I know this is going to build up to something big. But as the episode went along, I did want to see a little bit more about how that connected to the story or what the significance of all that was. Even if we can kind of imagine it, I still want to know. Yeah. The episode, when it kicks up, it kind of resumes with the question 
that we had last time, which is uh, whether Jimmy was going to accept Kim's proposal to go into business as partners, but not really partners. And I know we were sort of mixed a little bit on what we thought Jimmy was going to do. It seemed obvious that he would take the deal because that's the most plot forward direction for the show to go. But it still wasn't clear what shape it would take and what that would be like. And I do think it was nice to kind of see the the side of Kim that's telling Jimmy, as we saw at the doghouse, the hot dog place they were sitting at, which you may know or may not, but it's from Breaking Bad as well. Like uh, that's a place that there were two or three scenes that took place over the course of Breaking Bad in, against that uh, the backdrop of that that neon doghouse sign. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a real hot dog place in Albuquerque, but beautiful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It makes me realize how much I love those motion signs, and you don't really see them as much anymore, you know? No. I'm old. Anyway, so in that moment, we kind of see Kim telling Jimmy, remember, I'm going to do things my way. And he's trying to, you know, even in in telling her how to do something that's standard operating procedure, which is how do you inform your boss of your resignation in a way that's that's like not damaging to you. Even in doing that, giving her advice about how to resign from HH&M, he's like suggesting this shady, leave it on his office overnight. And then in the morning before he's had time to come in and see it, you will have called Mesa Verde and you will have kept their business because it's important to Kim with this big client she just landed. If she had that going into their new venture, she would be set up. You know, there would be a lot of billing coming in that could help. Right, but he's not suggesting anything too shady. That's like just basic smarts of like, oh, timing. I could send this at just the right moment. He'll be golfing, and then I'll have a better chance of keeping my client. That doesn't seem too shady. But even within the realm of not shady, he's shady is what I'm saying. That like even within the realm of not shady, he's advocating for her not to speak to Howard face-to-face. Right. As much as you would like to say you owe them nothing, in fact, Kim feels that she owes them a lot. But we do see that uh, her moment with Howard is, its I thought it was a really interesting scene. What did you think of that scene between Kim and Howard? I mean, it, it, as far as how it applies to what we know about Kim, but I would say as far as how it kind of adds to our understanding or lack thereof of Howard's motivations and character. Uh, well, I don't know. I think I, I guess I didn't find anything too unexpected uh, about it. The The exciting part was when she... Uh, comes outside the door and immediately hears him, uh, just like Jimmy predicted, uh, going to get Mesa Verde on the phone. And then she physically runs full out <laughs> to call Paige and see if she can keep her foot in the door. That was like off to the races. But I'm talking more about the quiet moment where we see Howard's... We've seen his kind of robotic shift from to stone-faced deadness to smiling for clients, you know? And we've seen him kind of be this sort of twitchy guy before. And I feel like either the actor or the writers or somebody are amping up this trait of Howard's, that he's kind of uncomfortable in his skin. Like, he feels... He seems to be someone who sits in a dark room staring into space. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) if no one's watching him. He he feels like a guy who's got some inner turmoil that he can't quite express. And he says that thing about... uh, wishing he could have started out on his own. Mm-hmm. And then you see him like thinking about the past and he says a fresh start seems really nice or whatever. Right. And he mentions that he was thinking about doing that for himself, but his dad wanted to throw another H up on the sign or however he put it. It's just like we're learning that he can be a bitter guy or he can be a sort of a smoldering uh, personality and that comes out once in a while. It seems like every one of his emotions is like a calibrated thing, a calculated thing. There's like this weird void inside this guy, and he almost seemed to be momentarily aware of it in that scene, where he basically looks off and says, 
I wanted to do this. My dad wanted me to do this. And well, there's no point in thinking about that. You know what I mean? Right. It's like you see him come up on the edge of some kind of self-awareness or some kind of some kind of introspection, and he kind of avoids it. And I didn't see it as callowness. I saw it as, you know, someone did a number on that guy. Mm-hmm. I think I'm getting more out of this character than you are. <laughs> well, I think you're, you're finding it more, more compelling or interesting to think about. I, I still hold to my, what I said, that I think we're just getting a little more revealed that he can be bitter and smoldering. And to me, that's that's nice to get, you know, sketched in a little more of character, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make me go, what's that all about? Or how much more are we going to learn about it? I just go like, yeah, it makes him a little more real. But if he is a bitter and smoldering guy who has got this robotic uh, sheen of being a guy who's got it all together, and he does choose to have a moment with Kim where he says, you know, I did believe in you, or he wants to remind Jimmy that he used to call him Charlie Hustle. Mm -hmm. It's like, that is that weird robotic fake man's attempt at reaching out. Yeah. We may never see beyond this level for Howard, but I I know now they've set the stage for the next move or two that he makes. We know he's a guy who who did what his dad wanted him to do and not what he wanted to do, you know? And I think that that paints him. And also, it explains who the other Hamlin is. Frankly, I've always wondered, was there an older brother or what? But now we know that it was the father who may be absent or dead or whatever. We don't have any information there. Right. So Kim rips off the Band-Aid with uh, HH&M, and then immediately it's a race as she's leaving, feeling kind of good about the exchange. We hear Howard paging his assistant. Mm Mm-hmm saying, uh, please get Mesa Verde on the phone. And then she says, I'm doing that. And then Kim snaps to attention and runs and gets in touch with Paige. Yeah. And I like this character of Paige, even though she's just barely there. I like that we've sketched her in as the person whose facial expressions tell you how the deal with Mesa Verde is going. Uh, Yeah. We saw Kim kind of try the scrappy attempt at, you know, a sort of a philosophical plea to say, won't I be more engaged by your business because I'm just me? Right. I didn't know quite what we were supposed to make of that scene. I definitely didn't think that things had gone poorly. So when Kim shows up at the dentist office with Jimmy, right. I thought that was a really nice bit of uh, visual storytelling where she smiles at Jimmy after he asks her, how'd it go? She does think she got it. Right. And she got the double thumbs up. And then he says something that I think is really important. He says, I love seeing you like this. Mm-hmm. Jimmy wants to make Kim happy. Yeah. And I don't know if she's not trying to make him happy, too. It's hard to know. Are they doing a little bit of a gift of the Magi type thing where he's trying to do what she wants and she's trying to do what he wants and neither one of them is quite getting what they want? I can't quite tell. I know that Jimmy seems to be putting a brave face on some form of misgiving. You caught it, too, I'm sure. And, you know, in the end of that scene when he says, yeah, let's do it about the dentist office, when she Mm -hmm. seems to say, let's do this, you know, he seems strained. Mm-hmm. And then later, when she has seemingly lost the Mesa Verde account, and he says there will be other Mesa Verdes, and she's like, really, you still want to do this? She goes in, and then we linger on him looking strained and worried, like, what am I doing here? Right. I think those are just indications that he uh, has the same worries she would of like, hmm, I hope this works out. Yeah, but he's hiding it from her. She's telling him her concerns, and are you sure? Right. Are you sure? Are you sure? Right. He's waiting till she turns the corner and going from saying, yeah, come on, yeah. to going, hmm, I don't know about this. Well, he wants to be in, in business next door to her, and he wants to hold up her, her feelings. And so, yeah, to her, he's just being a cheerleader, uh, and he'll keep to himself the uh, sideways expression of 
gosh, I hope this goes okay. I guess we'll see. I mean, there's two episodes left in the season, so things aren't moving fast enough to be done with this. Right. So maybe at the end of the season, shit, they may not even have their office open. That could be something they save for next year. As far as the other half of the kind of legal maneuvering in this episode, I do think it was really interesting to see Chuck kind of spring into action. And it was tough to know exactly what it was, but I think the impression that Jimmy stole Kim from the firm is what really hit Chuck. And I don't think that that's accurate, but he even says the man is Svengali when he finds out that uh, Kim has gone into business with Jimmy. He can't imagine that someone just sees Jimmy and judges him on his merits and wants to take a chance on him. Yeah. I feel like he thinks he's saving the bank from making a bad mistake, but clearly there's some major bitterness towards Jimmy. He didn't go outside of anything proper or normal. Of course, if you, you know, if if you work at a law firm, it's going to lose a major client. You're going to work to keep that client. So it's not like he did anything particularly weird or, or underhanded. Well, no, that's what he says to Jimmy later, too, is that he didn't steal a client. He retained a client. You know, he goes into that meeting saying, I'm here to put your minds at ease. You know, he says that to, to uh, Kevin and Paige. Yeah. I just wrote down, this is some next level flim flam. This is like Jimmy level flim flam. <laughs> right. The McGills are genetically predisposed <laughs> to manipulation. It's just like a high level sarcastic argument to go into this whole thing of like, yeah, you'll be great to get the young single lawyer instead of the... Older, experienced people, good for you. It reminds you of those times when Jimmy is like talking to an old person or whatever. He's laying it on a little thick, but you do think maybe these people are just susceptible because this person is hitting them right where they live. You know, what Chuck was doing, correct me if I'm wrong, was basically bringing up a lot of things that Kim didn't bring up. Mm -hmm. Of course. Kim sold herself on moxie and personality and caring about them as a client. And Chuck just mentioned all this terminology that maybe is real and true stuff that Kevin at the bank is already thinking about, you know? Mm-hmm. And Kim just didn't mention it. Mm-hmm. When I say laying it on thick, like when he goes like, blah, 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 boring, you know, it's like, it seems like even everyone in the room knows what he's doing, which is why I was glad that Kevin said, look, I take your point. Mm-hmm. I see what you're doing and I'm, I'm glad we did this, I think is basically what he said. Yeah. And at that point, from the look on Paige's face, I knew that Kim's chances were winnowing down. <laughs> right. I know you had some concerns about whether we've seen too much of Chuck's aversion to electromagnetic energy. Yeah. Yeah. As much as I love that Dickensian vibe of going to his place and you've got oil lanterns and you've got, you know, it's dark and you've got these little pockets of light. I love that imagery. I think as a plot point, it it does feel like we've seen it now. Right. We've seen it enough times and for long enough that it's not developing. And so it's it's losing its uh, novelty. And so you got to think, uh, you know, before long, they might, uh, you know, move it forward as a story somehow. Either, uh, you know, maybe maybe he... <clears throat> Maybe he has an epiphany somehow that that uh, opens his mind to 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 the fact that it's really psychosomatic, and he 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 breaks free of it, or he has a uh, uh, a really bad episode, and and then Jimmy says something to him that that snaps him out of it, or uh, uh, or maybe even uh, Rebecca comes back at some point, and that has uh, an effect on, or that would just have a big effect on Chuck, and could could sort of move the the. Uh, electricity allergy you know down a peg in in the uh important traits of his that we're paying attention to well if if he was if she shows up and and he feels that he needs to try to change his situation to get her back in his life or something right. that at least gives right. him a reason to to be trying one thing over another you know what mm-hmm. i mean like as opposed to just seemingly being in the the kind of status quo that he's been in since the show started right um, but we do have the indication that he's been going back into the office a little bit more lately. 
Right. It's just a slow build on it. And so you got to think, yeah. I mean, is, that, is that headed towards some kind of a crescendo? His illness, psychosomatic or not, does set him up for Jimmy's sabotage. You know, Jimmy comes in and at this point, Jimmy has found out that Kim feels she's lost Mesa Verde. Right. There's a certain kind of vindictive feeling in a scene like that. Like if this was a different show, I would think that he might beat Chuck up or something Mm -hmm. or he might threaten him in some way. Mm -hmm. I was sitting there thinking, like, how is Jimmy going to get vengeance on Chuck? And then he chooses what for me is the most nervous making way, which is to say that I love seeing the character of Saul Goodman and I love seeing Slip and Jimmy have all these workarounds. Mm-hmm. But it makes me nervous when Jimmy McGill does it in the context of law. Yeah. Because of how much it reflects on people's picture of him as just, is he able to even sit at the table with the adults and practice this job? And also, what does it mean to Kim? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That Jimmy would be the sort of person who would just never learn his lesson, you know? Right. And that if he's taking her so literally at, you do your kind of law and I'll do my kind of law— if he doesn't think about how that kind of thing can blow back on her and why that wouldn't be a good idea, then he's being very myopic. And he's not being the character that, you know, in the first season, we loved to see him pull off all these little tricks because it seemed like he was trying to figure out this sandpiper thing or he was trying to get respect. Now he just seems like a guy who doesn't know when to quit. Mm-hmm. And what's going to be, what's the point of switching all these numbers around? Is it just to get revenge on Chuck so that they will have a lot of trouble uh, or does he think that it will blow them up so badly that that uh, Mesa Verde will leave HHM and come back to Kim again I think it's to make a fool out of Chuck and yeah. then have knowledge that the business is not going well and that this this austere professionalism that he right. promised is not what they delivered and then make them vulnerable to the fact that through her personal relationship with Paige Kim has a foot in the door kind of Whenever things go bad or whenever there's a confusion, there's a, we should have gone with Kim, or if you'd gone with Wexler, this wouldn't have happened, or whatever. However that plays out, it just seems like it could have such bad consequences for Kim's trust in Jimmy. And and that's kind of what I'm dreading seeing. Yeah. When she said, you do law your way, I'll do it mine, I thought we had reached a, a, a new plateau of understanding between the two of them. And again, Jimmy seems to not know where that line is. Yep. Maybe they'll move in to their new office next week and, and buy the following week the final episode uh he'll he'll lose kim and and have to uh uh strike out on his own i do think that it was significant that we saw chuck have that one sort of seemingly sincere moment with jimmy where you know he says to him thank you for looking after me and that with all our differences i hope you know i'd do the same for you right i don't think chuck has anything to gain in that moment i tried to think about whether this was chuck being manipulative or being cynical in any way but i don't see it that way i think that was just a genuine moment of warmth from Chuck to Jimmy, which if we think about it, Chuck did bail Jimmy out of prison and help him get a job and all this stuff. So Chuck has definitely looked out for Jimmy. Just because he's a haughty prick doesn't mean he hasn't been a good brother in a lot of ways. In that moment, I saw a flicker of conscience in Jimmy. And I wonder if Jimmy is going to be the reason why his his felony <laughs> is discovered, if he's going to confess before someone finds it out. Or if he's going to decide to change it on his own to, to fix what he did. We haven't really talked about Mike yet. I guess the one thing I would say about Mike, and I think you would agree, is that not a lot happened with Mike in this episode, but it did sort of, it got us a, maybe an, a, a, a tiny bit deeper into whatever he's going to do. But this was definitely a holding pattern episode for Mike. Yeah, it only seemed to move forward by a few inches there, but we got the whole truck thing at the beginning. That's part of the story, I guess. So uh, that took up some time, but but really 
as far as what's going on with Mike and where he's headed and what's going to happen with the Salamancas. Yeah, that all seemed to just barely move forward, and, and Mike uh, made a, uh, is it a tire spike out of that garden hose? They were really playing it as a reveal when uh, Hector showed up at El Grigo Cuyador, mm-hmm. and I felt like that was such a weird moment because I watched the episode twice, and the second time, it did hit me more because I was like, oh yeah, Mike is waiting for Hector, and so when Hector shows up, it plays like a, there he is, you know, but as far as the first time I saw it, I was like, eh... I'm not surprised that Hector's there. Why is the music going boom, right. boom, boom, boom? But it was more about if you put yourself in Mike's mind and you're staking this place out to follow this guy, now he knows what kind of car Hector's in. Now he can tail mm-hmm. Hector. I guess for Mike, this is a reveal because Mike's finding this guy. Right. And the show's just doing a visual job of telling us what Mike's interested in. You know, I, I just feel like that's linear and nice and visually told and, and it just didn't feel like enough for this episode, and I mean, the tire spike, the image at the end is an exciting image, but it was a long way to go to get to that idea. If Mike's just going to set down a tire spike next episode, I don't know that we needed an episode to build up to that. Right. It's like one of those filler episodes where you you know, like, okay, they're doing some stuff, they have to kill some time, or they want something to happen on episode eight, and so they have to stretch out a little bit. Uh, so yeah, he just... That's why I say his story just just moved forward just a little. It's possible that this is just the last slow-paced episode before things take off. Scene for scene, this episode had a lot of meat to chew on. Like, I, I got a lot out of that scene with Howard. I enjoyed seeing Jimmy and Kim have this deepening of their relationship. There seems to be some real sparks between them, even while they're kind of not quite on the same page in some strange way. So I feel like it was a strong episode in a lot of ways, but it did feel like at the end of it, I was like waiting for a bomb to go off or something, right. something that was going to be um, a big event. I mean, we had a really fun scene with Jimmy and the two film school jerks and Major Theodore Fudge Talbot. That was a fun scene. There just wasn't quite anything in this chapter that felt like that that moment, that big flashpoint that tells you what this chapter is about. I felt like it was the most uh, uh, boring episode uh, of the whole show yet, which in a way is kind of exciting for me because we mainly – praise the show so much because we like it so much but this gives me something more exciting to say which is i didn't love this episode as much as any other is the least compelling episode to me because the things that we're getting into are ideas that i don't find compelling like whether whether kim can keep mesa verde or not it's like yeah in real life if you're a single person striking out in business and you have a possibility of a big client or 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 losing them that's a huge drama but it's just it doesn't to me make a good idea for drama on a TV show whether or not you're going to keep a client which is a bank will this lawyer be serving this bank or not it doesn't it make me excited and 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 the same thing goes for like uh, we're worrying whether we should sign the lease on a new office will we be able to pay the bills or not i don't know but should we sign it should we not sign it that again is the same way. It's like that's that's just not exciting TV, and it makes you realize like okay, well that's why you know a, a more simple and dumb show like Matlock is concentrating on whether or not the Matlock can figure out who committed the murder before the end of the episode, you know, because that keeps it rolling, keeps it exciting, and these little issues like that, spending time on them, it it just it starts to feel slow. 
and dull. But that's not to say that I think it's not all leading to something, you know, that could be a huge, super exciting, crazy episode on 9 or 10. If they don't do something to bring the interest level back up a little bit over the next couple episodes, then it's gonna, I, I could just say this show became slow. You have these moments of dullness or slowness, and then you punctuate them, and then you suddenly know why they created that tension or why they set it up over this long amount of time, or just why it's fun to watch someone do a thing, like the montage of him you know, falsifying the documents. Right. Like, that is a fun moment to see, but I, I think that what you're really talking about is a lack of stakes. Yeah. I don't care about a, a lawyer and a bank. I mean, I'm I'm happy for them. I'm happy for them if they make their money and they pay for their homes and, you know, their kids' colleges and everything. Right. I just mean I'm not compelled by that, same as you aren't. Right. I'm not asking for a more mean-spirited show. I just think that it's been too long since Jimmy in particular was in a life-threatening situation. I think that is the crucial thing. I think that Jimmy has been—I wrote down Jimmy the bystander. Mm-hmm. It's like two or three episodes where he's been trying things that haven't been clicking, and he's been struggling, and I like that they've depicted that, but I think almost they've done too good a job of depicting like a malaise and a sense of confusion. Mm-hmm. When he was trying to decide on whether to rent this space with Kim, if we knew that he was hoping to turn some money around in some shady way quickly right. and that he needed her to sign the lease so that he could get some money to deposit in a thing and then pay off somebody who was going to break his legs or something, right. then that scene would be full of pleasure. Well, it wasn't helped this week either by uh, just the time spent with Kaylee, I felt like, was also so mundane, which is purposeful because that's cool to be like, oh, we're secretly she's working on some weird plan for violence or for stealing drugs or whatever the heck that she doesn't know about that's neat but what we're watching is a gentle granddad doing a a a home project with his pleasant granddaughter right and we're confronted with Kaylee's I mean I, I at this point I think she's not an immortal she's like a time hopper I don't know what age she's supposed to be in what era I've just given up because she seems like 10 and right. so that would make her a teenager, which she definitely is not supposed to be during the Breaking Bad era. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We need to sort that out. I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to because I think it just doesn't work. I just think they have not done a very good job of casting age-appropriate kids for Kaylee because she mm-hmm. should seem like a little kid right now instead mm-hmm. of like a fifth grader or something. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I try not to get bumped by it, but I agree that scene. If there was a moment that I found kind of boring, it was that moment. And I was like, okay, I don't need this much of this after this much of this. Like, if that had been at the beginning of the episode, mm-hmm. I would have thought, oh, the nice pacing of the scene. But mm-hmm. when you're getting towards the end and you cut to Mike and you spend two minutes talking with Kaylee and then the mom, that to me felt like window dressing to the the notion of what is Mike up to, you know? Yeah. And then seeing him put the nails through, I mean, that was a nice little, uh, like a punchline. I don't know why he washed the hose. I was trying to figure out why he washed it, but that's just something I'll never understand. That was <laughs> a odd, yeah, that just extended it and... uh I mean, it was a nice image, the, pur- the yeah. purple gloves and the suds going down the drain. Again, really good visuals, but in the service of seemingly just padding out this this uh, this one reveal that he's putting together some kind of uh, 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 tire spike thing. And then we get to watch a little bit of His Girl Friday while he finishes the job. Honestly, seeing him chuckle at something on television, even if it was the mildest little smile that he gave— um, was a great character beat. You know, he is a dark guy, and he is a killer, and we know that before his son died, he was involved in some shady stuff as a corrupt cop. So it is there is a coldness and a darkness to Mike that I did enjoy seeing in those moments where he's watching Hector Salamanca. And I did think to myself, knowing what happens to Hector, but not knowing how it happens, mm-hmm. doesn't he now become like a marked man? Like when we see him from Mike's point of view, I felt like, oh, I'm watching a killer watch a guy who I know gets 
messed up somehow. It was the first time I felt sort of bad that this guy who seems so vital is going to be laid low mm-hmm. so soon. And, and, and maybe by Mike, maybe Mike will play a role in it. I always thought Gus was responsible somehow, but maybe we're going to see that Mike plays a role. Maybe by the end of the season, it reaches a crescendo in the form of Hector's origin story being complete, so to speak. Maybe, or maybe we go for another two years before we before he has a stroke or something. You know, oftentimes we look at the next week's episode title and it doesn't tell us anything. But the next week's episode is titled Nailed. <laughs> now it tells us something. So it makes me think maybe they just have a great mic scene coming mm-hmm. and they wanted to say, people love these mic scenes. Let's give, them, let's give them a real lead up this time. It was like watching Walter White think of something that you might not know what his plan was for an episode or two. Yeah. And I guess Mike and Jimmy, they all have those elements uh, of having a scheme that they put into motion and you don't know quite how it's going to pay off necessarily in that episode. We're assuming that he's going to use that hose with the nails through it Mm -hmm. to do something against the Salamancas. It could just be that he's really going to mess up those rhododendrons. Exactly. You could just beat the heck out of a rhododendron bush, I think, is maybe what he's planning. I think if you do that, what that does is it shows all the other rhododendrons that they need to tighten up. Right. So it's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. If it's like 20 minutes of Mike beating a bush <laughs> with the hose, <laughs> it could be so well shot that we would be like, yeah, that wasn't bad. <laughs> well, any parting thoughts before we wrap this one up? No, I think we covered every everything I was thinking about. So until next time, you can reach us at saulsearching at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at saul underscore searching. And that's it, Chris. What about shouting out the window as you walk by their house? Could they do that? If I walk by someone's house and you're yeah. saying they recognize me right. and they shout out a question. Yeah. If it's if it's a question that I can answer in the time it takes, like I can keep walking and just turn and answer. Oh, okay. Then yes. If it's like a yes or no question. But if it right. requires me to stop and think, we could be there all day with me shouting yeah. thoughts and theories, you know. Up at their window. So maybe don't get into that and just keep to the first two suggestions that you gave them already. All right. Hot talk. Hot talk. Hot talk.